0: Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Sullivan, Poor, md He's Associate Professor in Internal Medicine and Endocrinology. He's the Director of the Type 1 Diabetes Basic Research uh, at the Elizabeth Weiser-Caswell Institute at University of Michigan, and he's the Co-Director of the JDRF Center of Excellence there as well. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Monica. It's a real pleasure to be here with you.
0: Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple things. Uh, first of all, could you just uh, tell our audience what is the focus of your laboratory? And our audience is primarily, you know, scientists, so you can go as deep as you want.
1: Oh, sure, absolutely. So um, my lab principally studies the um, mitochondrial life cycle in pancreatic beta cells, um, and and uh, you know, mitochondria are crucial for it, for fueling insulin secretion and also for maintenance of cell processes and beta cell survival Um, so we um we're interested in the molecular regulators of, of of mitochondrial um you know uh this process of conversion from biogenesis and the generation of mitochondria the dynamics of the mitochondrial structure and then clearance of of uh damaged and old mitochondria by a process called mitophagy and uh you know, I think my lab is most well known for its work in mitophagy, and a lot of that was inspired by observations that I've, you know, I made starting, you know, a little over five, six years ago um, on genetic regulators of mitophagy um, that are associated with type one diabetes in humans.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I cannot wait to dig deeper into some of this. Um, you have uh, you have a couple papers I'd love to talk about. Sure. Um, you know, you've got uh, a paper came out in uh, November, 2020 in JCI Insight, Mitophagy protects B cells, beta cells from implement- inflammatory damage in diabetes. And then um, you also had a, uh, a really neat paper that came out even more recently, which was Mitofusions 1 and 2 Collaborate to Fuel Pancreatic Beta Cell Insulin release via regulation of both mitochondrial structure and DNA content. So you've been pretty busy during this pandemic. And um, do you wanna talk a little bit about those uh, papers? Maybe maybe the first one, a little more uh, catered towards the T1D science?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, <clears throat> you know, about, I think in 2014, we made this observation that CLEC16A, which is a, a gene associated with type one diabetes, um is a novel regulator of mitophagy mitophagy you know being a um, a selective process to clear sick or damaged mitochondria using the autophagy machinery um and um you know the the inspiration for that work was um that we had observed that clex-16a was dysregulated by a by a key beta cell transcription factor called pdx1 uh, in, in, in in mice that were deficient for PDX1. And so it made us kind of realize, you know, at the early stages of our work on CLEC-16A that, oh, this type one gene may have principal roles in the beta cell and, you know, kind of fit with this, you know, thought that I at the time and other, many other people have had that maybe beta cells play a more important role in type one diabetes than just simply sitting there waiting to get killed by the immune system.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And so I was really excited about this um, idea initially. Um, And so you know we started to generate all of the reagents and tools and know how to study Clec16A and found that Clec deficient beta cells, um, you know, led to uh, you know impaired insulin secretion and accumulation of sick mitochondria. And so we were excited about that work. And that's that's older work. But one of the missing pieces of that work was what is the relevance for type one diabetes? Um, you know, how do, how do mitophagy deficient or CLEC-16A deficient beta cells, how do they handle stress that you might see during immune attack?
0: Wow. Um,
1: so this recent paper in JCI Insight was really trying to dig deep into what is the relevance of mitophagy during inflama- inflammatory stress? How do beta cells deficient for um, CLEC-16A handle inflammatory stress? And then could we utilize our knowledge of CLEC-16A maybe to protect human beta cells again from inflammatory mediators? So kind of rather than just a generic gene discovery of what CLEC-16A does in beta cells, you know, using those previous insights to fuel applied knowledge of uh, inflammatory responses and maybe protection from, from immune and inflammatory mediated stressors.
0: So when you, um, in the JCI inside paper, when you had, when you did the overexpression of CLEC-16A, what happened?
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, that was the, that was kind of the last study, you know, and the one that, you know, I told my, you know, I, this work was actually both these papers you're discussing are led by a phenomenal postdoc in my net, lab named Vibhav Siderala, And so when, when, uh, Vibov and I discussed, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could try to, instead of making beta cells sick. You know, I jokingly tell my friends who aren't in the scientific community, they say, what do you do? And I say, well, I tend to cause a lot of diabetes in model systems. Nice. Um, so it's nice when I can do something that could maybe prevent beta cells from dying. Um, so we, we came up with the idea of, you know, could we use adenoviral approaches and overexpress CLEC-16A and maybe prevent cytokine mediated death. And, you know, I, Said to my postdoc, I was like, "This is never going to work," but let's try it. <laughs> um, so, you know, he did it, and and you know, we saw a you know some some good some good protection from cytokine mediated death. We were really excited about it. Um, that was kind of the finality of you know a lot of more mechanistic studies earlier in the paper. And again, when you're when you're me, who's you know I've I've had type one since I was five, so I've been living with type one for 35 years. You know, to be able to say, "Oh, look, we found a a genetic uh, link to type one that regulates beta cell health and survival. And maybe we have a way to protect it. You know? Yeah. I'm not singing praises of a cure down the pipeline, but it's, 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 it's an exhilarating feeling when you can do something to yeah. protect against beta cell death that has links to the, you know, to the disease in humans.
0: Yeah. It was a definitely a tangible, um, piece of progress. I mean, I think it's really, really fascinating. And I mean, so, once that you, once you saw this, you know, that the, once you overexpressed clexic CNA, you basically, you know, the expression in eyelids was protective against t uh, one T1D. Um, you know, what are you thinking uh, is happening?
1: Well, I mean, I, so I think, you know, at the, at the reductionist level of like simplifying it, I, I, you know, what we, what we were finding earlier in the study was if you induce inflammatory damage to beta cells, Um, You know, it's well known that there are signaling intermediaries that are activated and those signaling intermediaries cause, you know, lots of damage in a beta cell. One of the ones that's very clear is that you cause pretty severe damage to the mitochondria. And so when you damage the mitochondria and you dissipate their membrane potential, they're not able to really contribute substantially to energy generation anymore. And so beta cells want to get rid of those mitochondria so that you can replenish the healthy mitochondrial pool. So, you know, the the finality of the study at the end of the paper was if we know we're going to damage the mitochondria with an inflammatory stressor, if we accelerate mitophagy, if we can get rid of more of those unhealthy mitos, maybe we can allow the cell to kind of come back. Um, And so that's how we put this final study into context, which is, Get rid of the six damaged mitochondria, allow healthy mitochondria to reemerge, and maybe you can abate this, this you know stressor that's leading to beta cell death. Um,
0: Is there any evidence, you know, from the NPOD um, specimens or anything uh, along those lines that the islets um, of those who are newly diagnosed have, you know, have different mitochondrial morphology, size, number, integrity? Than in those who don't have type 1 diabetes?
1: So there's there, you know, there, there were, there have been studies presented um, on some of that data at like ADA meetings. And so, you know, you see conference abstracts and the like. Um, there's a lot of work in NOD specimens that suggests that there might be some um, ways to target the mitochondria that might prevent. You know, I'm thinking of work from Clay Matthews' lab on mito ND2. Um, you know, that there might be protective alleles that prevent type one. There are also protective CLEC-16A alleles in type one and human genetics. So, um, but the really careful examination of mitomorphology and then, you know, has, has not been done yet. We've been trying to get our hands on some specimens to start to do that. Um, Good project it's,
0: for a postdoc.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so the um, you know, the thing that you know we really want to do that is just unfortunately not so feasible, and maybe in the years to come, with the NPOD group will be is um, you know, getting live islets from unfortunately deceased donors who used to have type one and examining their mitochondrial respiratory function, yeah. which you can't do on an on NPOD sample. You can only look at the mito. You can't study how they're working. I think that's really um, the frontier that we would love to see. Um, and and hopefully, you know, some of the work to develop kind of, you know, model systems of type one diabetes, humanized model systems will then allow us to really do that in more elegant detail.
0: Yeah. Well, the Burst Philly Lab in Geneva is creating those organoids, right? And they've got all mm-hmm. that going on. They were on the uh, off the record call this morning. So maybe they would be an interested party. But, um, what are, let me ask you this. This is sort of, these are a couple of questions we had. Um, what are your thoughts of the impact of antibiotics on mitochondrial function? Um, could antibody use potentially hypothetically contribute to mitochondrial dysfunction in the pancreatic beta cells, you know, driving to this, you know, BCL2 caspase three driven apoptosis, and then suddenly they're sick and detected by the immune system.
1: Um, yeah. So, uh, Uh, let me, let me go back and answer one other thing first, and then answer your second, your sec your question here. So one thing you were asking me about human and NPOD preps, I will, I do want to point out that there has been an observation of impaired mito structure and function in type two diabetic beta cells too. And I do want to point that out that that's there, that's been known for quite some time. Um, And because we're learning so much of that there are a lot of simil- emerging similarities between type one and type two. Yeah. That I want to say that that makes me optimistic that we will probably find mito dysfunction in type one beta cells as well. So right. getting back to your second point, did were you saying questions about antibodies causing mito? No,
0: antibiotics. You know oh, the anti-biotic use of antibiotics. antibiotics. Yeah, because um, right. I mean. Could they? You could antibiotics, or uh, there's been sort of a smoking gun—a lot of antibiotic use preceding, mm-hmm. you know, a diagnosis of type one, and and could it be at all uh, related? I'm just throwing this out there to some kind of mitochondrial dysfunction.
1: I um. So I can't cite any papers or any evidence, but what I will say is that you know there there is some suggestion that certain antibiotics can. Uh, impact mitochondrial protein translation. Yeah. Um, do do humans get them at substantial enough levels to do that? I mean, so the the classical ones are like tetracyclines and chloramphenicol. You know, those are antibiotics that we don't use that frequently. Yeah, they affect. Old. Yeah, they're pretty old. They do affect protein translation in in bacteria, and at 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 high enough doses can interfere with mitochondrial protein translation in mammalian cells. Mm-hmm. Are those relevant observations for human type one? Hard for me to say, Um, those would be the most logical ones that you would say, oh, that drug could get in and interfere in the mitochondria. Indirect effects, maybe, Um, it's a little harder for me to know. I think that this idea of antibiotics affecting the microbiome that probably then lead to see different effects and metabolites that then it could affect beta cell metabolism. Right that's a great uh, project. I I don't, again, I don't have evidence, but I let this, this whole emerging idea of, and this is something that I'm very drawn to. So, you know, we're really interested in the genetic, this genetic link between CLEC and beta cells in type one. Obviously there's a whole host of really exciting work on the microbiome in type one. And so I love this. And now, you know, work from Mark Atkinson and, you know, uh, work, you know, from Al Powers's group and a number of different groups that are starting to study the exocrine pancreas. So I'm in love with this idea of type one is a symphony of many organ systems. That's that there there's many things going awry.
0: Yeah. Um, and you're, you're not the first to say that. I do think that that's totally the best way to look at it. And that's what makes it so complex, right. And hard mm-hmm. to figure out as well. It's like you're trying to work in an explosion in the spaghetti factory. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, so your idea about, you know, antibiotics, maybe interfering with the microbiome affecting systemic metabolism, coming back affecting beta cell mitochondria and probably also the immune system. Yeah. I love it. I'm excited about it. Um, How you get the, to singular hypothesis driven experiments, that's the hard part, right? So. um, mm -hmm. Definitely.
0: Um, I just thought I threw it out there. And then how about um let's talk about, you know, one of the first um, autoantibodies can be GAD, right? And it's intracellular. it's weird. Um, how that that is one of the first ones. Uh, how might that or might not that fit in with what you're seeing in your work in terms of mitochondrial dysfunction?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, GAD is a metabolic enzyme, right? Um, uh, you know, the, I think that probably our, our knowledge from, and, and maybe this will change and I will admit that I'm not up um, on as much of the uh, you know, the, the approaches to try to utilize targeting these autoantigens to maybe suppress immunologic defects. Um, You know, at least the prevailing knowledge is that GAD antibodies are a marker of, beta cell dysfunction and GAD itself is not a primary driving defect in the beta cell. You know, so I I can only go based on what I know about that. Um, We haven't thought about GAD metabolism too much in terms of mitophagy. Mm -hmm. I would, I would, you know.
0: Well, you've got glutamate, right? That's involved with mitochondrial
1: yeah. 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 Um, but I, but I, I probably would, would not be able to give you any definitive knowledge of, you know, something specific with GAD metabolism and beta cell mitophagy to date. Um, but I, I would, I would definitely, you know, humbly suggest that, you know, gl- glutamine and glutamate certainly has roles in, in amino acid stimulated insulin secretion and propelling, um, components of the TCA cycle too. So, um, you know, they're, could there be indirect roles? Um, how how GAD metabolism fits in with mitophagy and beta cell dysfunction and type one? Again, I, I wish I could give you a direct answer. You're giving me lots of ideas of things that we should be going back and doing homework on though.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. I just think <laughs> it's like, it's interesting though. It's like GAD's one of the first ones. It's intracellular. I mean, there's mm-hmm. definitely some interface with the TCA cycle there with the glutamate. So, I mean, it's just kind of like Could that just be an offshoot of mitochondrial dysfunction? Who knows? It's left to be figured out. Um, I want to ask you, have any of the EVs um, been seen, you know, detected during early insulitis insulitis in humans that contain uh, EVs containing mitochondrial refuge or anything like that?
1: Uh, So I'm not familiar with them, but uh, I will say that there there is ample evidence in other disease processes that that is occurring. Yeah. Um, and, um, it's actually something I'm, uh, I've, I, I, have a, you know, a friend who studies generally mitochondria, many diseases, who's been asking me for some time to ask, to look at that very question. Um, so, uh, you know, there, I think there was actually just a very recent paper that, you know, circulating mitochondrial DNA may of um, may have some readout for disease severity of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so this idea of using these, you know, uh, um, you know, extracellular vesicles and these circulating, you know, uh, um, you know, cell-free DNA systems to study disease, severity disease pathogenesis. Um, I, I you know, is there potentially a role for mito DNA and mitochondria in this process? I, I would, I would hazard a guess. It's, it's not the craziest thing for us to think about. Um. So how it fits into the disease. So one of the difficulties and one of the reasons I haven't chased it just yet, mostly is it's the chicken or the egg. It's like, well, if you detect those things in the circulation, is that just telling you that this is another way to tell you that you had a sick beta cell? Or is it, oh, no, 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 this is a primary driving process in the disease. I think that's always a hard part. With what we do is, yeah. you know, you you're showing up on the scene after the crime, right? The beta cells are dying; they're whatever. Um, what if so, somebody?
0: What if we? What if you got? No, we What if? What if you got the blood of a um, someone who had presented with one auto antigen, and um, you know, screened it for this type of, um, you know, e- these EVs with the mitochondrial, um, whatever refuge mitochondrial DNA, whatever.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the, that's, that's the study that I, uh, you know, a a good friend of mine has been pushing me to do. And and so, and, you know, I've uh, I think it's just one of those things that we just have to develop the system and maybe go try, you know, I think the resources are precious and, you know, as a scientist, you're always careful, like, you know, well, you're not going to be able to get boundless amounts of serum from pre-diabetic humans. So it's like, well, let's be very focused before we do it. I will say, I like the idea. I've always liked the idea, and the chicken or the egg thing has been troublesome. Looking early at, you know, single auto antibody, double auto antibody patients would be the best place to start. Yeah. The the other thing that has been a little bit has restrained me from going there yet is this again orchestra question that if you detect something in the blood, so we know we have messed up beta cells in type one. We know we have messed up, you know, T regulatory cells and probably effector T cells probably apcs too yeah. now we have messed up exocrine cells and then um and then uh, uh microbiome and so this is the reason i've pushed back on doing it is that we don't yet have a good methodology to say if i were to detect something generic like mito dna where did it come from what yeah. cell type i don't know and that's why I haven't yet. But I will tell you that 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 you know I'm giving away trade secrets. So someone else will pick up and go do this. <laughs> so I hope <laughs> I hope I get I hope I get acknowledged somewhere. But this is something I've yeah, I've loved this idea of could 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 mito DNA be a circulating damage signal I would love I would love to think that that would fit very nicely with some of our studies about fundamental mitochondrial defects
0: Well one um, good thing is right that here. the JDRF has this new push to try to get the general population to screen themselves for if they've got autoantibodies mm-hmm. and so maybe then there'll be more serum and then maybe more people can get involved so that would yeah. be cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you know, you're, you're reading my mind. I would, and I think it's, there's, there's, there's potential here. And I want to, I think in the years to come, it's something that we want to do.
0: That's awesome. And perhaps this will be a lure for the best and the brightest um, students, graduate students to come to University of Michigan, which I know is an awesome place. Um, Okay. Just a couple more questions. One Mm -hmm. is, know, I, I love the mitochondria myself. I always loved teaching it. And it's just so fascinating to me. I just love the metabolics that go on there. The fact that, you know, we basically hijacked this bacteria and now it's working for us and it's just fun. But so, you know, when you're looking at cytochrome C, right, is there any work looking directly at cytochrome C role in mitophagy deficient beta cells? And could cytochrome C be impacted in heterozygotic uh, hemo, uh, HFE uh, gene carriers, you know, hema, hematochromatosis, um, mm-hmm. heterozygotes, and because a lot of the uh, people who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, uh, or many of them come from Nordic countries, and this is where there's a, a preponderance of uh, HFE homozygotes, so right, they ha- and that means they have high iron, um, mm-hmm. and even if they're heterozygote, they have high iron, so can you share any insights in that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the cytochrome C, you know, the prototypical cytochrome C role, right. When we think about mito is our cytochrome C is released as like one of the last processes before a cell dies, right. It's released from the mitochondria as one of the last things before the beta cells die. Um, So, You know, I, I, at least in the beta cell literature, I'm not familiar with direct roles for cytochrome C in driving the process of mitophagy, but what I will say is mitophagy deficient beta cells, when exposed to an inflammatory stimulus, they die at a higher clip. So by the, by extension, you would expect there's going to be more cytochrome C release in these cells. Um, because they're more susceptible to dying. Is it possible? And we think it's likely because you're retaining these damaged mitochondria. And so, you know, I think you can make some logical connections between those things. Now, your question about iron is really interesting, because at least during inflammatory beta cell damage, um, there is this thought that um, iron handling is really important in how beta cells respond to inflammatory damage. Mm -hmm. So, Mandra Polson's work has shown this. Miriam Knopp in Europe has shown this. She's done some lovely work with fritaxin. So you're talking about you know Friedrich's ataxia and and you know um, that's not hemochromatosis, but it's again another iron handling related disorder. Um, so I think that there is some reason to believe that there are connections between iron handling um, in 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 this you know in these mitophagy susceptible beta cells. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about our study in, in mitophagy deficient beta cells is, and I forgot, you know, when we were talking offline before we jumped on is that we do have this observation that when we treat mitophagy deficient beta cells with Tyron, um, which does have some iron binding properties yeah. that Tyron can prevent um, cytokine, the, accept, the the increases in cytokine mediated death that you see, or the sensitivity to cytokine mediated death that you see in mitophagy deficient beta cells. Now, Tyron has antioxidant properties too. So, you know, I think at the surface level, we've often thought our observations with Tyron are probably most likely driven by, by, you know, sequestering some of the oxidant stress. But is there, is there some thought that you know could iron handling be involved in the process i think it's not it's not outside the realm of reason to go there and and, and think about that and i think you know many smarter people than me have thought a lot about how t- very tight regulation of iron and again this is you know work you know spearheaded by my collaborator and friend Tom, thomas mandra polson but yeah you know he's thought a lot about how tight regulation of of iron is really crucial in metabolic disease, so it's 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 not it's not a um, you know grandiose thought to think that you know these connections that you have in these Nordic countries between iron handling and hemochromatosis and susceptibility for diabetes. I, I think they're all very much in the you know a reasoned you know connection.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it would take sort of a deep dive into the literature and then you know, a careful, uh, careful architecture of a hypothesis. Like you said, you don't want to waste resources, whatever, but. Well, you know,
1: and it's hard, right? So like, you know, unfortunately, you know, you could say, oh, well, look, if too much iron is bad, let's like sop it all up. Right. But we know that if you treat someone with an iron chelator long-term that they're going to develop iron deficiency anemia. Right. So that's like, this is one of those hard things. I think but from a biological perspective, we love it. Yeah. It's like, how do you, you tune dial that? it? Yes, you got to right. tune like, it.
0: We need right? to too much iron it.
1: is bad. Not enough iron is bad. And so, you know um, that, that's something that has drawn us in by some of our results and got us thinking. And clearly the iron sulfur clusters in the mitochondria are absolutely crucial for You know metabolic function, right? So we're really attracted to the idea, and then you know, then I put my then I leave my lab and I put my clinical hat on as someone who sees patients with type one still, and I said, well, how can I do that in in my patient in the clinic, right? And so I don't know how I could do that there, but I definitely can do things in the lab, Um, you know, and then you just have to figure out how to connect the dots.
0: Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, And we've heard from a lot of MD PhDs and and PhDs in the laboratory, like, okay, young, young um, scientists. Okay. I have this great idea. How can I scale it to the clinic? And th- they're really wanting a lot of direction for that. Um, I know some people think that that's sort of a done deal, but it, I don't know that it really is. So, I mean, there's a lot of room there too. Okay. Here's almost the last one. How, um, how can your, uh, how might your work that you're doing relate to that of Anil Bouchon, who's up at UCSF he shows non-clearance of uh, senescent beta cells in pancreatic islets lead to T1D autoimmunity, he has a new grant modulating the senescent secretome to block progression of T1D. And I just, you know, it's sort of like what's what you're seeing kind of calls to mind what he's seeing. And I wondered if you could comment.
1: Yeah. So um, first, I, I absolutely love the work that that he and and you know his former trainee now independent Peter Thompson is doing in this area. And and if you have not talked to Peter on your podcast, you should. He's we just have. Oh he's,
0: all right. Yeah he's up in Manitoba there. He's really Yeah really so great. he's a
1: he's a superstar. So I love Peter. So uh, that you know it's a revolutionary idea and I really love where they're going with it. Um so you know while we are not you know I'm not dipping my toe in the water there yet. What I will say, and probably not ever, I don't think I could do it on the scale that they're doing. I will say that there is some cool literature in other cell types that suggests that mitochondrial damaged models and mitophagy or mitochondrial dynamics deficient models do seem to activate a senescence response. Um, and senescence responses come in different flavors and I'm no senescence expert, but it is intriguing to consider that there could be different inroads to activate this senescence response that maybe could be valuable downstream to what are driving those senescence phenotypes that then elicit type one. And could, could mitochondrial you know defects be an origin? I mean, I think that they've thought a lot about DNA damage Responses being heavily involved could mitochondrial damage be involved? Um, again, you have to kind of draw, you know, extended lines from different systems. Um, but I, I I find that very appealing. Um,
0: yeah, it's interesting. I just think that you know, there's a lot of ideas, and I mean, who knows? if someone's listening to this, and they have a prepared mind, and they hear something, think, oh, well, maybe I'll just pursue that a little bit and see whether it's something I want to do.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so um yeah, I think that you know it's a it's a really beautiful um, system and it's it's early days for that work, but it looks really promising. Um and and the nice thing is again, they have you know a druggable type system, you know, with these senolytics, And so it's it's exciting. Um do, do, do mitochondrial dre- defects drive any of that? I don't, you know, I'm not familiar with any evidence of that in beta cells yet, but um, if they end up finding some, I hope that they'll get in touch with me because like I said, <laughs> there's some literature in other systems and it starts making your, you know, your antenna go up a little bit and say, oh, okay, maybe there's something we didn't think about, yeah. um, you know, happening here.
0: And, um, yeah, so we've talked a lot and I've sort of, you know, really put you through the paces. Thank you so much for like responding in such a high level, uh, manner. I do. Um, I know as we spoke about, you're really involved in this new center of excellence for JRF. Can you, um, talk a little bit about it? What does it mean? How your lab's going to be part of it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I appreciate you letting me talk about this. So something I'm really excited about. So, um, the, the JDRF Center of Excellence here, um, you know, we're one of two centers in the, in the, in the world right now. The other one is, uh, was started as a cooperative, uh, Northern California Cooperative between UCSF and Stanford. So, yep. um, you know, our center um, here um, is, you know, basically a multi-program, multi-investigator, um, cooperative uh, uh, project here is a joint venture between us, U of M, and our Caswell Diabetes Institute and, and JDRF. And, right. and the focus is actually, there's it's a multifactorial focus. So we're looking at type one diabetes at multiple levels um, here at our U of M center. So we have a center that's, uh, you know, the projects are spanning from everywhere from diabetes complications to burden of disease to artificial pancreas to you know, beta cell regeneration, which is you know the project that I'm involved with, yeah. to psychosocial aspects of type one. So we have lots of different groups that are involved here that are working together. And so it's a really wonderful way to try to be impactful and realize that type one diabetes, look, I, lo- I wanna cure type one, I wanna fix type one, and I'm thinking only about beta cells to do that.
0: Yes. But
1: when you're living with type one, there, that's that. That's not what you're thinking about uh, when you're a patient with type one, and that's what I love about our our program. And so we have multiple investigators involved. So we have folks like Tom Gardner, who's our who's our you know our the 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 kind of the leader of our pack, who's a well known well you know a world renowned eye researcher,s thinking about diabetic retinopathy and how metabolism in patients with type one drives metabolic defects in the eye and Activates processes, metabolic processes, mitochondrial processes that lead to diabetic retinopathy. And we have Matthias Kretzler and Sue Pennether thinking about diabetic nephropathy in that same vein. We're working with um, patient derived samples uh, in work, uh, you know, and clinical trials led by Rodika Papusui here, who's like a well known clinical trials uh, complications researcher. And then she's also taking our patient cohorts. Uh, and some of our, uh, data sets that we've driven with patients on artif- you know, these, these novelly developed artificial pancreas technologies to try to apply that for machine learning to improve artificial pancreas technology. So we have an automated pump program. We have a complications group. And then Joyce Lee here, um, uh, who is, is, um, now developing psychos working with, you know, folks in our psychology group. To think about psychosocial burdens of type one. Because again, type one, when you're out of the clinic, it's not just about the burden of, oh, my what is my what does my DEXCOM tell me, or what does my Libre tell me about my blood sugars? What do my monitors tell me? It's also about this, you know, tremendous psychosocial burden of disease that impacts how our young patients, especially, deal with their, their type one. So it's, it's to me, really exciting that we're we're thinking about things across the compendium of, yeah, we want to regenerate beta cells, and we know that's important, but how do we help people living with the disease on a day-to-day basis, on a more rapid basis? Because developing those regenerative cures and beta cells, that may take us a long time. I mean, they right. told me when I was a kid, oh, it's just around the corner. Well, I'm here yeah. 35 years later. <laughs> it's not. And so... We need to de- de- deliver things to people like immediately and, and sooner. And so these things that we're doing in patient-derived samples, patient-derived cohorts, yes. and thinking about burden of disease on on every level is making me really optimistic as a researcher, as a but as a provider and also as a patient that we're going to really deliver things at multiple levels. And this is what happens at Michigan because we're, you know, this is the Midwestern Ideology that we have—we're all in it together. This is a highly collaborative environment. There's no, you know, cutthroat. You know, don't share here because someone's going to scoop you. This is kind of our philosophy here I love and our that. organizing philosophy. So it's really fun to be part of this group.
0: And then for think, me, as a beta yeah. cell
1: person, work no, on oh different. No,
0: different no, I, different I, I'm sorry. I just was. I have to just say, I, I so celebrate this that, you know, this collaborative nexus is really just bound to, um, give rise to some kind of cross-pollination and probably serendipitously, you know, I mean, somebody sees something in the clinic, relays it back and some kind of conversation and something comes from that. So I think it it is really the the best way forward in a multifactorial disease like this Mm -hmm. is to really start looking at the disease. So through many different lens and lenses, and that's what we're trying to support here at the sugar science, really. Um, I guess I would just ask you one more thing. You know, do you have any words of encouragement? I mean, obviously you've been, you've really sold, uh, you know, us on Michigan because it it just seems like a really vibrant place to do type 1 diabetes research. But do you have any words of encouragement to young scientists studying type 1 diabetes? Why is type 1 research still an important field to gravitate towards as a young scientist?
1: Yeah. So um, I hope I get, I hope I strike the right tune here. I'm obviously biased, right? I have type 1. I've had type one since I was a kid. So you might say, well, this guy obviously is going to say, do it. (laughs) So then the question is, what do you do if you don't? And, and so the, the, the thing I love about our field is that it's, it's a, it's, it's a small, relatively small community. And I really love that because you get to make these really wonderful relationships with colleagues. Um, there's a, there is a lot of cooperation, you know, we, you have your super competitive people too that don't share and don't whatever, but, but by and large, our community is really cooperative. There's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of enthusiasm and that, and because it's small, there's a lot of room to innovate for people. Yeah. And so That's if you're right. a young person, you ask, how am I going to fit in? How am I going to find my niche? What am I going to do? And if you're interested in careers in academia this, you know, beta cell biology and, and type one immunology, and then this shared crosstalk that's developing between those two groups, it's still really young. And so there's a lot of potential. And so I think if you're thinking I'm going to show up in a field where everything is figured out, that's not the case. I mean, just speaking from studying beta cells and type one, that's a new concept. Like when I was starting, you know, my endocrine fellowship, um, the idea of studying genetic regulators of beta cell function at type one, like people laugh me out of the room. Like my (laughs) grants got thrown in the trash. They were like, why are you doing this? Right. And now here we are like 10 years later, people are like, Ooh, beta cells in type one are really interesting. So things are moving and evolving at a really rapid rate. And so if you're a young person, you can get in on the ground level of that and help push things forward. And so that to me is really exciting. Um, It's an international process. People are doing it all, studying this all over the world. So it gives you opportunities. If you're coming from afar to the US to do research, you can find a home. If you're here in the US and you're thinking, oh, I might wanna go do work with someone in Europe, like that's possible. And so I love that opportunity for opening horizons and expansion and the like. Um, And then I think that the science is not tired. It's interesting. And so um, that also gives me some optimism that, you know, we're not going to be studying the same old thing 25, 30 years from now that we're studying right now.
0: And so evolving.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, this, I I don't want to disparage what I do in the clinic. I love what I do in the clinic, but, you know, sometimes in the clinic, things move pretty slowly, right? Like I'm still talking about insulin and glucometers and, you know, we, we've made a lot of headway in technologies to treat type one, but, you know, you can't do really outside the box things in the clinic for good reason. Otherwise we're going to (laughs) hurt people. But, but in the laboratory, there's so much that you can do and innovate and new ideas that you can bring to bear that are actually then hopefully not too far from getting to the clinic. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's why I'm, I'm excited about, you know, potential and, and future directions Um, in this field. And then I also say that the old guard, the more senior folks, um, they're really welcoming because they know it's a small community and they want to see their knowledge and their insights and their thoughts. They want to see those passed on to another generation of young people. So um, that's that's something I do in my lab. I talk about paying it forward to trainees in my lab because of, because of my wonderful mentors Um, And so I hope that we'll keep seeing that. And I tell people, you know, when I'm at meetings all the time, if people want to listen to me drone on, which is one day you might be taking care of me. And so I really care about what you do. And I hope young people come in and, and, you know, they might be my boss one day. And that's okay, because they're going to help take care of me. And that means a lot to me.
0: Scott, talking to you today was so inspirational. I really... I'm really uh struck by everything you said.
1: Thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. It I and again, I love what you all are doing. I, I it's really exciting. I like the idea of building these bridges and getting us talking to each other more.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: this is how we're gonna make impact. Um yeah. you can't I think do so. siloed work anymore.
0: No, we need to have a global uh I don't wanna home base basically. And we're trying to we're trying to build that for you with you know, uh, and really, and really, it's, uh, it's about um, a place for you all to come congregate and connect uh, off the record, if you want, however you want to do it. Um, We don't want um, to have any constraints on that with the sugar science. And we don't, we don't have any, Um, you know, we don't share data, we don't share your data, we don't um, have any alliances with the big pharma. And so it's a really, it's like a off, you know, a sort of ethical oasis, I guess, if you will, for for um, ideas to be discussed and uh, brainstorms to happen. And um, we we'll hope that it will continue to grow. So thank you again. And um, mm-hmm. I look forward to watching your, your next series of uh, papers and I wish you all the best.
1: Oh, thank you. It really means a lot.